Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. Hey everyone, Aaron Noonan here. Welcome again to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco. My guest on this episode is Jack Perkins, but before I intro the ep, I've got to tell you about something that we've just launched. It's the Little Heroes Kids Book Series. It's got a bit of a motorsport twist to it, celebrating the careers of some of the great names of the sport, Peter Brock, John Bauer, Dick Johnson, Jim Richards and Molly Taylor. It's a great little book series for kids put together by our great friend Grant Rowley. They're available to pre-order now if you head to bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. They are great little birthday presents, Christmas presents, or presents just because you can give presents. They're a, they're a cool thing. Now, my guest on the pod, as I mentioned, is Jack Perkins. And we're working really closely with Jack at the moment on the history of Perkins Engineering and looking at all the cars in the book that we're working on together with him. So I didn't want to talk too much about the cars across the course of this podcast, but we do in uh, part two next week. But I wanted to focus a bit more on Jack's racing career. So we've split it up into two parts, and part one this week talks a bit more about his time behind the wheel and his his time as a youngster. So we talk about his memories of being a kid at the track. We talk about how he, I love this, how he got Holden Special Vehicle sponsorship from John Crennan for his Ford Kart Stars entry. Nothing like a bit of ambush marketing, his early years in supercars and the difficulties involved, and of course his diagnosis with diabetes and how he initially hit it for the best part of a year and how hard that was to do. We talk about, of course, also his debut in the great race at Bathurst in 2006, the race that was over before it started for he and Mark Scape. So here we go, buckle up, time to start part one. It's Jack Perkins on the V8 Salute podcast, powered by Repco. Jack Perkins, welcome to V8 Sleuth Headquarters. Not your first time here, though, it must be said. We've been busy working on a book lately, so you've been a bit of a regular face walking in and out of our, our building. But not. But this is the first time you've done the podcast. So I've got a bunch of stuff here. We've got a bunch of questions from our fans. It won't hurt too much, I, I promise. But welcome. Good to have you here. Yeah, thanks, Noons. I um, I feel like I might almost have an office here at the moment <laughs> with, the, with the book stuff, but... I do enjoy coming down here. When when you asked me if I wanted to do a podcast, I thought you might be running out of guests if you're getting no, me on, mate. <laughs> no, the barrel has a lot in it. Yeah, we're not scraping the bottom, that's for sure. There's oh, heaps. And I tell you what, our National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions are proof that we aren't doing any scraping of any barrels here. There's plenty of interest and there's plenty of uh, stuff to talk about. Go to the start. You've been going to Bathurst since you were, what, couple of months old you've not missed a bath since you were born and that's not just an expression that's an actuality from what 1986 yeah yeah so there's a photo of me as a as about a two-month-old baby behind the nz garage at at the track in 86 which which was um the beginning of it i guess and um yeah i haven't missed one since um uh, my sister hasn't been to all of them she she would would miss a few but um yeah, I can't obviously remember remember them all, but um, <laughs> first few are a little foggy yeah. for obvious reasons. Yeah, but no, obviously, a, a, you know, massive place for our, our family, and um, yeah, it'd be a bit weird one day when I'm when I'm if I don't make it one year, which which will happen at some stage, I'm sure of it. Uh, it's a streak that nevertheless is is impressive, no matter where that number finally finishes. But were you a smart ass as a kid at the track? I got a feeling that the industry thought that little Jack was a little smart ass running around the pits all the time. Did you see it that way or not? Well, I mean, yeah, looking back on it, I guess I, I probably was. But um, <laughs> at the time, I guess, yeah, I don't know. I'd like to think I was more quick-witted than being a smart ass. But, um, fine line, fine line. I, I just grew up with with all these people um, in the industry, you know, and, and being at the track was something I always did as a kid. You know, you, you, you went to your dad. You went to your dad's work, and mm. for me, that was going to the races. So, yeah, I've got memories like, you know, Dick Johnson, Peter Brock, but not just those guys that everyone knows. Obviously, all the various mechanics and so many people in the industry um, that I've been involved with for such a long time that, um, yeah, I guess it kind of was a bit of the family 
for for me as well. You know, I got memories. I used to fit inside a race tire, <laughs> and I'd get pushed around. You know, like literally go round and round and round inside a tire and stuff like that. So yeah, I got I got great memories, and it was it was a cool upbringing when you think about it. Were there other kids of other drivers that you were you were little buddies with? Yeah, so. Um, um, John Trimble's son, Michael, who you you and I both know, mm-hmm. um, Trimby's he's a good lad, so we used to kick around a lot. I remember they used to always give me a Daily Planet shirt, and I had no idea what the Daily Planet was. <laughs> um, and mum and dad used to quickly rip that shirt off me. But they, we, we were great friends, and they're obviously customers of Perkins Engineering as well. But I, I now know why I wasn't really supposed to be kicking around in Daily Planet <laughs> shirt. Um, for those playing along at home, Daily Planet's a brothel. So um, as a seven-year-old kid, that was never never ideal. But um, I definitely remember hanging around uh, Reese and Ryan Hansford, mm-hmm. uh, Benny Grice and his sisters, Lucinda and Sally Grice. Um, a little bit Stephen and Kelly Johnson, but they were a bit older than me. Um, we, we hung around a little bit with Brocky's kids. So Jamie and um, I forget his daughter's name. Alexandra. Alexandra. And, and Robert, yeah. Yeah, and Robert um, and John Faulkner's son, Peter. That, that, yeah. Off the top of my head, they're probably the closest ones I can think of. But we're, we used to all just look forward to getting to a track and catching up because we were mates. Yeah, yeah. What's your earliest racing memory what's the uh, you've been going to them since you were literally a month or two old but what's the first thing that you kind of remember uh, i don't know four five something around <laughs> that that sort of age is it is it playing with the kids or was it the actual cars or was it the the location or what sticks well, in your brain the the first memory is when you see a photo like the one i spoke about so obviously that's not the same as a, a remembering memory but i think it was my my first real memory i reckon's um, one of the Winfield Triple Challenges at Eastern Creek, um, I ran into the transporter and smacked my chin on something in the gooseneck of the trailer and cut my chin open massively. And I remember going to the medical centre and I was parked next to Scott Doohan who just had a ripper shunt on his bike and had three broken legs or something. <laughs> and I got five stitches in my chin. And that's probably the first memory. And I remember the year after... I was sitting in a cardboard seat box, same track, in the back of the truck, and the box fell over, and I smacked my head again, and I got stitches in my head, and again, I was in the medical centre next to Scott doing it a year later, <laughs> and I, I remember it clear as day, and um, I would have only been five or six years old, but yeah, they, they're probably the first memories, and then 93 Bathurst, I remember, I've told this story once before, I, I found a, a rabbit's um, hole in the back of the pits, and I, I had like five pet rabbits for the week there. And there's a photo the Saturday night when we're going home, Dad putting my pet rabbits to bed inside a tyre lying down, putting a bit of cardboard over him, and he's holding dolphin torch. And I'm thinking, mate, the night before Bathurst, if I was doing that, I'd, I'd be just like telling my kid to get stuff. But, yeah, all great memories, mate, when I start to think about it like that. Oh, that's great. That is, yeah, the, Bathurst assaults are very important, and the night before the big race – Probably the last thing yeah. you expect to be doing these days. I know, with, putting, uh, putting some rabbits to sleep. Anyway. <laughs> so the triple challenge was clearly dangerous. Every time you went, you got whacked. Yeah. Chin, head. You and Scott Doohan, have you ever met ever, ever no, after that? No. Probably a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Probably a good thing. And he, he wouldn't even know that I was in there, I don't reckon. Like, I've got a real good memory and he would probably have no idea who I was, but I just remember it <laughs> clear as day. <laughs> you do have an unbelievably sharp memory. What's your first memory of going racing? Did you have to – I think you bugged your dad, didn't you, for donkeys to go kart racing. And it took a while because lots of kids are starting at six and seven years of age, but I think you were, what, 11, appropriate number, but around that age. Yeah, no, that's right. So I, I kept, from as young as I can remember, wanting to get a go-kart. And every time I asked for a go-kart, whether it be birthday or Christmas, I got golf clubs. They didn't look anything like <laughs> a go-kart. There's no engine bolted onto them. No, um, you know, mum and dad just really, I guess, I won't say they weren't interested, but they didn't want me to do it or didn't want to push it down me. And, you know, I, I played a lot of golf as a young bloke, but um, uh, I think I eventually got my way when we were about, it was a bit bit younger than when you mentioned, but it was, we got a fun cart, not a not a racing cart. Like a paddock basher yeah. type thing. Yeah, and dad put a... Um, like a pull start Honda engine on it, and it was just from roaring around the back of the airport at Moorabbin. And uh, I remember the first day we got it, I, I thought it was a bit too fast. <laughs> and my sister actually enjoyed driving it a bit more around the back of the taxiways there. Anyway, we ended up 
flogging that thing to death. I remember when the tyres wore out, I'd used to pinch them off the tyre trolleys that the, the, the guys would use at the racetrack, and then they'd have bald tyres <laughs> on the tyre trolleys, but the go-kart had good tyre tyres on it. And um, I remember Moff would come. That's another young bloke I used to hang around, probably more so away from the track, but Moff in his school holidays, we'd flog around in this go-kart. James Moffat, yeah, yeah, James yeah. Moffat, yeah. We'd, we'd flog around in this go-kart till it ran out of fuel. And um, so that was the first kind of experience with a go-kart, but then a racing go-kart. It was, yeah, it would have been either end of 97 or start of 98. We we got a go-kart and and went out to Oakley and, and kind of started doing that, yeah. What changed the the thing to now allow you to do it was it a case that they that your mum and dad said all right you can do it you're on your own you go and you go and make this stuff happen or did they just get did you wear them down enough that they finally gave in how, how, did, it, how did it go from no 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 to yes it's probably a question for them but i reckon probably wearing them down you know you you just keep asking and it was interest for me and you know i was privy to be able to drive some road cars on the farm or sit on dad's knee and steer and uh, you know, be exposed to driving probably more than kids mm. at school mm. that I went to. Um, and it just was such an interest, you know, whether it be a golf cart or the go-kart or the fun cart. And, yeah, when, when when we finally got – I remember we went out to Oakley one day, Dad and I, and we just went out there and the gate was open. We had a look around and I thought, yeah, this looks awesome. And I could sort of see where the race lines were because the track was darker. And we eventually got a – yeah, got a go of a cart and then we, we – we must have bought one, and I remember it coming home in the back of Dad's Dad had a Toyota 4-runner. Back seats were folded down, and this little go-kart was sitting in the back, and it was an older gut, like wasn't a brand new one or anything. And that's when we we started racing. Yeah, it was it was you know quite cool to be able to just go from Moorabbin Airport to Oakley, and everything was quite local. Mm. We lived in Sandringham, not far from the Sleuth here, and um, yeah, it just seemed like it was a cool thing to do. You know, you never thought that you'd end up racing carts all around Australia. So at the time, this is fun. There's no, I want to be like Dad. I'm going to be a racing car driver. Or, or, or did that come a bit later on? Or was it was it kind of already there in the background, and that was just the start of it? I reckon I would have always wanted to be a race car driver. Definitely. Um, I used to always put Dad's race suits on and gloves and helmets. We've got photos. Don't yeah. worry, we've got plenty of photos. And I'd sit there and watch it on TV, wearing a helmet and gloves and boots, and just yeah, it was kind of all I wanted to do. And then I think when we started to go to the go-kart track and racing, it was a bit more serious. Um, but I remember the first race. Again, I, my, my memory is more from photos, but Oscar Fiorinotto, who was working for Dad at the time, who was, you know, quite big with Russell Ingle as an engineer and now is, you know, super shock, shock absorbers, mm. he helped me on my first day racing go-karts. Lined up a big engineer there for the first race. Yeah, so... I think there's a photo of him lubing the chain or something like it was. It was. It's cool memories because he was quite a big supporter of mine at that stage. Um, but I remember like my mum's family. Mum's in a family of nine, and like half the aunties and uncles all come out with the deck chairs, and I, I ran last or second last or something in my first race. So I don't know what the expectation was, <laughs> but I, I feel as though the expectation was probably that I was going to win it. But um, yeah, from there I guess we got a little bit more serious. But it was hard because Dad was always working, racing. I didn't have that kind of father son go away. Every Every weekend karting because dad was always too sort of busy so it was kind of guys like oscar and another guy bobby smith and some other people that helped me quite a lot to, to go and do go-karting yeah and because your dad was busy running the business the race team not just his own cars building engines for other teams cars for other teams uh, that's a huge project all in itself so it wasn't because he didn't love you it wasn't because he didn't care about you just that he had to do what he had to do to run the business and if it could fit in you could go for a run and need help and whatever. Whereas there's other dads who do the whole, you, look, you could do it, but you're doing it on your own. I'm yeah. going to have nothing to do with it. So he more so didn't have as much to do it purely because of his time rather than than his want. Yeah, and I, but I also now looking back on it, like he was never really prepared to go over and beyond writing huge checks for it as well. So, you know, back in the day, buying a second-hand go-kart out of the trading post and putting fuel and tyres on it when you're running a race team or whatever, running it through the business is all pretty easy, you know. Yeah, it's like yeah. pinching a lollipop if your dad owns a milk bar type yeah. thing, you know. It's not that big a deal. But I could tell that, um, you know, as karting got on, that, you know, kids were doing more racing because it was more money and more time away from school, which was a big thing for mum and dad for me. And, yeah, definitely dad was sort of too busy, but equally probably didn't have a heap of dough to throw at it. Um, for, for, and, and I, having now got 
got a kid and going down that path, I can, I can understand <laughs> why you, you don't want to be forking out, you know, heaps of money on go-karting, that's for sure. Get those golf clubs and tennis clubs, yes. uh, tennis rackets ready for little Emmy when she's yes. a bit older, for yes. sure. Uh, so karting goes on for a while and you do what you can do. I remember that you, you did formula, you stepped into Formula Ford, but by that stage, what are we at? Early noughties, early noughties, and you ended up with a, what, a 1992 Van Diemen that was nearly old as you were. Yeah, so we're just winding back because my, my last year of go-karting was 2003, mm. and then I was not allowed to do any racing in year 12. Oh, so that's mum and dad school. Yeah, we're doing school here, like no interruptions, you only get one crack at going to school and that's what you're going to do. Yep. Um, and so year 11 was the year that I ran in the, the Kart Stars. and Which is a Ford back series, yeah. wasn't it? And, and there's a bunch of good guys in it. Yeah, and I wrote to John Crennan and got sponsorship from HSV. In the Ford series, so hang on, hang on. So you got HSV sponsorship yeah. in the Ford series. He would have loved yeah, that. Yeah, he did. That's he did. how they, they remember when they used to have the Tickford five hundred at Sandown, and they used to put the HSV uh, HRT would clip the Tickford off the um, the sticker on the side That's of the right. car because it wasn't in the yeah. sub regs, and they draped the thing over the caused the shit fight. But yeah. um, he would have loved a bit it, of ambush marketing yeah, like he, that. He did, and you know, I ran into Creno only about a month or two ago. And I introduced him to my fiance Tara, and I said, "This is kind of my first sponsor." And it was it was mm. John Crennan, and um, I wrote to him, and and he wrote back to me. And this is all letters, no emails. And I remember buying a briefcase so that when I went and saw him, I looked like I knew what I was up to. I don't even know what <laughs> was in the briefcase. What? Well, that's uh, that's oh uh, three, so I'm sixteen or seventeen at this stage. <laughs> I love it. And so I went into Crennan's office. I was With my, an empty briefcase. Yeah, well, I might have been a piece of paper in there, but. <laughs> I was mind blown because his office chair was a HSV senator seat. And I'm like, wow. Like oh, car seat. Car seat. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, well, that's a pretty cool office chair. Anyway, we're digressing, but he sponsored me for that year. And, you know, that, that was for me was so cool because it had always been dad was, you know, you got you to try and find some sponsorship. And like I'd written to so many people for sponsorship through that carding stage. Once I wrote to Motorsport News, and I, I think I was looking for 500 bucks, but I wrote $50,000. I got the numbers around all the wrong way. <laughs> I would have been quite young. And I remember the most foot news guys reminding me of that sometime later, but it was always about trying to help pay the bills. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, finished go-karting year 11 at school. Year 12 was all school. And then at the end of year 12 when I finished school, we sort of scratched around looking for an old former Ford. So were you thinking at the end of school about what you're going to do, career, profession, uni, stuff like that? Or was it, all right, I've ticked the box that mum and dad want me to do, let's get back to the car racing yeah. stuff? Yeah, I hated school. Yeah. But I knew and I respected my parents that I had to put my best foot forward and always, you know, do, do a good job of it, um, which, I, you know, I didn't do too bad. I ended up getting into mechanical engineering at university and I thought this would be cool. You know, dad always said you need to have a ticket or you need to have a bit of an mm. afterlife because I guess – you look back at dad's career, he was kind of never actually a, a paid full-time race car driver. He was a business owner mm. and mm. just drove the race cars as a part of his role in the business. So mm. he was never drawing, you know, like a big wage from a race team. So I guess I was integrated into that mindset pretty early on in the piece. Um, but as soon as school finished in year 12, I knew that I wanted to get, get going and try and either go go-karting again or you know, at that stage, get into cars. So we were in the trading post and bits and pieces and we did find, it wouldn't have been in the trading post actually, but we did find an old 92 Van Diemen former Ford, which was originally Stephen Allery's car, I think. Oh, you're right. And then we bought it off a guy called Matt Harvey who had bought it off Tim Slade. So it was Tim Slade's first former Ford as well. So there's a couple of names there. Um, and then it was a bit of a shit box and we spent a fair bit of time restoring it and getting it going so it would be mechanically sound and, those kind of things weren't that hard for our business because the race team had a Sparky there, for example, so we just made a new wire and set up for it, which cost you basically the wires because the wages mm. are paid for. Mm. Um, and then K&A Engineering in Adelaide put some new suspension arms and things on it. And it's, when when the time was going to go for about the first Formula Ford race was when university started and I did a day there and that was it. <laughs> I um, couldn't, <laughs> One day. Couldn't handle I, I just didn't want to be back in the classroom environment. I wasn't earning any money when I was in the classroom environment and I quite quickly realised they were probably going to teach me stuff that I didn't need to learn. That you could actually go out there and kind of Correct. learn it on the job and, yeah. you know, you're your father's son, aren't you, really, in, in that respect? And I started at Perkins Engineering, you know, not long after I finished the exams just as a gopher and I think I was on like 200 bucks a week but I just thought that was awesome. 
Oh, when, when you're 18, fresh out of school. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, it was good until I remember, you know, catching up with some school friends at an 18th birthday that year and I was telling one of the girls, I was obviously trying to impress that I was on 200 bucks a week. She said, I work three days a week at Boost Juice for 360 bucks. <laughs> and I was at that stage, I thought maybe I was getting a bit stiff, but I, I just, you know, really enjoyed the fact that I was working, making money. And I got to work on my former Ford, but I was also part of the race team as well. So, um, that that was fun. You're just learning so much mm. all the time. Is who was the every driver that particularly is in Formula Ford, but also karting has? And you just mentioned Tim Slade a couple of times. He's popped up already. But who were the names that were in Formula Ford around the time that you were popping up there? Because there's, I, I had to remind myself of this this morning before we sat down. But you raced Formula Ford against Daniel Ricciardo yeah. in the journey. Yeah, and that's which a, a lot of people wouldn't know or remember. No, and that's a funny story because we were racing the national round, so we'd predominantly did the Victorian State Series, but I also did that year three national rounds. So this memory. is two thousand two thousand five five. Yeah. So I did Vic State Series, and then I think I did Malala. No, I did Clipsal five hundred. Was my second ever. I think I've seen a photo race. of you launching off the chicane yep. in a white. The white 92. Yeah, so I did the first Victorian round and then former Ford had entries open for the national round. I thought, well, it's a great opportunity to get some laps there, just pound around on my P-plates and get some miles, which we did. And then Malala and Sandown was the last national round of the year, so I did Sandown. And, yeah, it was um, – who, who was was it? Timmy Blanchard, uh, John Martin, Paul Laskazeski. Uh, I forget who was the lead in the national series that year. But – I remember because I was in a 92 Van Diemen and this Dan Ricardo was a young bloke straight out of carts in a 92 Van Diemen and he was running about 18th and they're all like, oh, it's only because he's in a shitbox. I'm like, wait, I'm in the same I'm car in a <laughs> And I finished second in the first race and um, I spun in the next one in the wet and then finished fourth or fifth on the feature race on Sunday. But um, uh, Terry Kerr was another guy I raced against. He was ended up being my engineer at Walkershaws. I was going to say, that's he was the name that yeah, came later on. Yeah. He was racing Formula 4. Taz Douglas, I reckon, was racing as well. Um, so yeah, some pretty cool guys. You touched on Tim Slade. Actually, I met Tim in karting and he was racing the premier karting category called CIK, but that was quite expensive for what, for what it was. And my old man never that keen on doing it. I actually mechanic for Tim for a whole year and we won the, the junior intercontinental A championship as a mechanic. Right. <laughs> I was his mechanic. So he's, his old man flew me around and I, I was, I was like a 14 year old mechanic just. Doing what I liked doing, which was working on cars. So there, were, there was no option that you were going to do anything else, really. Probably not. When, when we when we wind back and paint the picture here, just of that part of your your life, you know, there's heaps that have heaps of stuff that's gone between those gaps to now. But let's face it, you're going to find a way to do this, whether you were holding a steering wheel or spanner, whatever you were, you're going to do it. So then, I think that there was an interesting change here, and this sort of came at a good time, I reckon, for you. If my memory serves, and you can, you've got a better memory, be, better memory than me is what I'm trying to say. So Formula Ford changed because the rules changed for the engines, didn't they? At the end of 2005, yep. they'd had the the Kent engine for oh, since day dot, and they went to the Duratec, wasn't it? So uh, um, a bit of a wholesale engine change for the category, which had had a lot of resistance for a lot of time because people went, "Oh, how much is it going to cost?" And they ummed and art for a long time, and finally for 06, they went, "We're doing it." It's happening. I think the Kent car stayed in the state series and that type of thing, but the national series changed. So for you, that actually helped create an op- well a reasoning to go. Well, why spend the money to step it up when we've got, you know, Perkins Engineering had some spare cars. There's equipment, as you said before. There's wages already being paid to people. Mm. It was probably a better thing to run a V8 than it was to run a Formula Ford. Is that how it all came to be? Yeah, yes and no. Yes, predominantly, sorry, not no. But um, the hardest thing for us was we tooled up to race Formula Ford. So we bought a car and I think from memory it was 12 grand, might have been 16 grand, one or the other. So we're in a more modern car. Yeah. yeah. So this, But this was a 92 Van Diemen. So we, we bought that car. Then we spent a bit of money on getting it up to speed. I bought two engines, Kent engines from a wrecker. For three hundred bucks each, we built an engine at work. We dynoed it. We ran. We we built everything up ourselves, and then we got to the end of the season, and they said, "Yeah, you're going to run a uh, Duratec engine," which at the time they then imp- imp- said that Duratec engine can only be run in a car post two thousand and one. So we were like, "Oh wow, okay, what's a two thousand and one car going to cost us?" And they were all about forty grand. And then we said, "Okay, what do these Duratec engines cost?" 
And the first lot that came out, which were kind of like a test engine and guys were getting some mileage on them, I'm going to say they wanted like 16 grand for an engine. The road car was like 16 grand. You buy a whole car for that. Yeah. And so I didn't have that money. I didn't have fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000. Dad wasn't that interested in cutting a check for Ford to go and buy all this stuff. So, and in, I actually tested Daniel Elliott's championship winning car, the VIP Pet Foods car, at the end of that year at Malala for Brett Lupton for Fastlane, which was organized through Craig Konecki from KA Engineering. He helped me through my former Ford year. And we tested at Malala. I'm not going to be one of those guys that said I was as good as Daniel Alley, but I think I did a pretty good time, like within a couple of tenths. And I think we sort of thought, well, yeah, you would probably be on a pace next year in National Series Formula Ford, but with this new engine, who knows? Like, mm. what's going to happen? So, Dad's team had been running the Autobahn car and the toll car. So, there was staff, cars, and infrastructure there. And someone, I think it might have been Gary Dumbrell, said, yeah, if you run a couple of DVS cars, we'll fund it. We'll get a sponsor, whether it be Wins or someone like that, and run a Perkins Engineering Junior Development Team. So, for Dad to sort of keep that going for me to drive would have only cost a probably grand or something when you think about it, which is for value for money versus starting the former Ford thing. I can see now we made the right decision from a cost point of view, but I would have loved to have had a crack at winning the former Ford championship because dad did, my uncle Terry did, and it was kind of the rite of passage when you're a kid, former Ford, have mm. a crack at the championship and sort of get this promotion. But yeah, it never happened, but um, you know, jumping into supercars was myself and Shane Price and um, yeah, fan, you know, great opportunity. I wasn't even legally allowed to drive a V8 on the road because you need to be full <laughs> yeah. license in yeah. Victoria. Yeah. And I just, just 19 turning 20 and we were racing supercars. And it sort of stepped up even quicker than anyone guessed because you went to Adelaide round one. So there was obviously Steve Richards and Port Umbrella, the main game, yep. Perkins drivers, new sponsor that year for the team, Jack Daniels, after a long Castrol connection. Um, yourself and Shane in a couple of black they were they were base black cars. They had Jack Daniels on them later in the year, but I think you did Adelaide um, same weekend. Greg Murphy has an accident with Mark Scaife at Turn Eight. His car's so badly damaged that he's not going to be ready to run at Albert Park in the main, which was not a championship race. But there was a franchise, you know, contractual obligation to run the car or run a car under number fifty one. So here you go from. DVS, you know, development series debut in Adelaide. Oh, this is all new and wow, this is a bit full on. And then you're in the main game a week later. Yeah. Filling in with the 51 slapped on your car. So the first part of that is the cars that we ran at Adelaide were plain liveried because the sponsor that kind of said that they were going to do something, it all fell apart. Right. Never never really happened. So dad had kind of committed to running the cars for myself and Shane. So we had no livery. And then I think plastic, Tim Pemberton. Came up with this idea of putting long Jack time, on long the time Holden PR. Yeah. Right? yeah, and he said, "Why don't you put Jack on the bonnet?" And then we had Shane on his bonnet, and it became quite a focus. It was a good point. way to tell yeah. the cars apart, at yeah. the very least. Yeah, yeah. So, and then yeah, Murph had a crash. I think it was turn eight, one of those ones at Adelaide, and we were Perkins Engineering was still supplying the engines to PWR then. Mm-hmm. And Keys is like, "Yeah, no, like we don't have any cars. We're going to be in a bit of strife. Might even get if we don't rock up, we'll get defined, which mm. was one hundred and fifty thousand, I think, for missing a race." And Dad said, well, we've got cars. What? We'll just run Jack or Shane or, you know, in the basically the development series team. So they'd come to a deal. And I think back then the appearance money was good, 10, 20, 30 grand around. And Dad just said to Keys, well, give us that appearance money and we'll run the car. So it sort of paid for itself. Mm. And got, yeah, got two practice sessions, qualifying, a couple of races at the Grand Prix track. And, um, my school was only around the corner from there, and I was two years after that I'd been listening to the cars roaring around in the classroom, and now I was out there. So that was pretty cool. Um, we, you know, didn't set the world on fire, but I don't don't recall finishing last. Might have been second last, third last, but it was kind of a real weird thing to be doing. Yeah. Second race in the main game. Yeah, it was one of those. How did I get here? <laughs> whoa, whoa. And we ran car fifty one, which was, yeah, because you, you had yeah. to run the number because yeah. that was the whole point of it. You had to fill the slot yep. that was being left by PWR's team. So, yeah, it was a Perkins car with the Perkins driving it, um, but it had to run 51. So that you and Murph would end up getting together a bit later on the, down the track. We'll yep. talk about that a, a bit later on. So your development series, you know, you're finding your feet, 2006, you and Shane Price. Then you start to get a bit of a bit, bit of a roll and start to work your way towards the podium. Was it 
where was the podium that you first Queensland Queensland race Queensland race yeah so suddenly is this starting to click that this is I could I could actually really do something with this now this is actually starting to pan out yeah well the th- like we we all rated Shane Price really highly and I kind of matched him a bit in testing and stuff and then Adelaide he he got his head around a bit quicker than me but the first race my gear lever broke. Snapped gear lever. Too off much and, strength, mate. Whoa, like, yeah. But I just remember going, like, why did this happen to me? Not Shane. Like, <laughs> anyway, so we DNF'd or fixed the first, finished nowhere in the first race, got through the second one unscathed, did the main game thing, and then I think the next round was there. Or No, it was Wakefield Park, and Shane got on the podium. And I thought, you know, he's going good here. I've got to, got to really keep stepping it up. And um, Queensland Raceway, I remember um, we were both quicker than Richo and PD on one of the days. And the guys come around and grabbed all our front uprights and suspension out of the DVS cars and got the big swap. <laughs> and um, anyway, it didn't seem to hurt us that much because we both ended up on the podium. Yeah. Shane and I were second and third. And that, that was cool, you know, first podium. Um, and I think Adam Macro would have won that one. So that was kind he, of the story He, he of the won year. just about all of them in yeah. that year. He was, on a, he was on a tear. And then later in the year, the logical thing happens that you and Shane pair up in the second Jack Daniels car for the Sandown Bathurst races because – at the time, uh, the two main game drivers could drive together. They weren't split across their cars like they are uh, these days, and they have been for a long time. That rule's been in place since 2010. It's been around a, a fair while now. So there was a lot made at the time, and I know because I was working at Tim Pemberton's office in Holden Motorsport Land, where he ca- he came into me one day, and if you've ever met Tim, and we will get him on the pod soon, hey, Noonan, mate, Jack and Shane, They'd have to be the youngest combination ever in Bathurst history. That's a good plastic too. I've had a few practice (laughs) runs over the years. Um, And I didn't have the database that I have today, but at the time you were, what, 19? He was 20? Something like that? No, I reckon I was was 20. Well, by the time Bathurst came around, I would have been 20 and he was 19. So the combined age was 39. 39. That's right. And that's what we figured out and- Plastic was well chuffed because it made the press release and the announcement all have have a lot more to it. So Sandown 500 is your first go, but off the track around that time, is it just before or just after the diabetes stuff yeah. pops up? Yeah, and just before that, we when we made, and you might not remember this, we might not even know, but we made a big deal about the, the young thing and we had a go-kart in a photo shoot. I remember this. And then, yeah, Jack Daniels come, that was Big no-no because it was like youth, kids, drinking. It was just a big yeah. no-no. So yep. it was a good – we it, all it, didn't it, see it like that. But the, the press shot was just you blokes with a Jack Daniels V8 supercar. And yes. the car got deleted. Yes, correct. I think there's photos of it around somewhere. Yeah. They've never seen the light of day. So that was kind of interesting. And you know, I learned a lot about how you got to carry yourself with that as a sponsor. There was a lot of pressure there for anyone that drove for that brand and, and any alcohol brand. So you sort of start to learn a bit about life there. And that we all learn a lesson out of that because we were promoting – Shane's father's go-karting business as well with the go-kart. Um, and then, anyway, I've digressed a bit there. but This um, podcast is all about yeah, digression, digression. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, So you're right, mate. Sandown 500 was September and I was really crook. I had a real bad flu that week and never thought much of it other than just do what you got to do to get through the race weekend. We tossed a coin and the coin toss was ended up being that I'd qualify Sandown, Shane started the race, and then Shane qualified Bathurst, I started the race. So I remember qualifying only a couple spots behind Richo going, oh, this is not too bad. We were 15th and 17th or something, but thought, well, you can only really compare yourself to your teammate. And it was pretty good. Um... Shane did a double stint at the start of the race and I was so happy because I was physically going to be in a bit of strife because I was crook and then something happened, steering broke and we were laps down. Anyway, finished nowhere. And then um, back then, um, Malala was the DVS round in between Sandown and Bathurst. It was, which was the first supercar event since Brock died. Correct. Mm. So in the middle of all that was when Peter, Peter did pass away. So... About a week after Sandown, I started to lose a heap of weight. I would get up through the night and go to the toilet for a, a number one two or three times. I'd go to the server and buy a bottle of water, can of Coke and a chocolate milk and drink them all before I got back to the car. That's how thirsty I was. And then eventually my eyesight started deteriorating. Like I've always had glasses, but I was getting real short-sighted. Like I couldn't See? Even the glasses were no good. No, not, and that's kind of normally when you knew your script was changing. Mm. Quite rapid onset, but ultimately. Yep. 
And um, so I went to my eye doctor. I told him all that stuff. This is now Wednesday before Malala. And I said, I need some new glasses. I got a race this weekend. He says, look, man, I reckon you've got diabetes. And I'm like, what do you mean? I don't even know what that means, mate. Just can we get some glasses happening and we'll be right. So next minute I was uh, in hospital and I was in the waiting room of the public hospital, the Alfred, and um, I'd rang dad said, oh, they think I've got diabetes. You know, can you come to the hospital or something like that? And he goes, where are you? And I said, I was at the public hospital. And he goes, mate, I reckon we pay private health insurance to get out of there because <laughs> there was like 20 car crash victims sitting in there with all broken legs before I was going to get seen. So then we yeah, went to a private hospital and long story short, they said, yeah, you've got type 1 diabetes. Um, again, didn't mean much to me, but this old disgruntled doctor came in and kind of recognized dad and me, I guess, or some the name maybe. And he had an old document that had a CAMS kind of old letterhead on it. And, and he said, look, man, you, you, you'll never actually be allowed to race cars again here. And um, that, was, that was pretty rough. This has escalated really quickly. Yeah. This has gone from I'm a bit tired, I feel a bit crap, geez, I'm going to loo a bit, to yeah. the thing that I want to do most in my life Yeah, in about 3.2 seconds is going to be taken right away from me. For what? I've got what? What yeah, is that? Exactly. Yeah. And um, so I, I sort of – I. Yeah, I went a bit down and quiet about it all for a period of time in hospital, maybe half a day or a day. And I was, you know, people were giving me injections and started telling, you know, getting I was getting tuition on what foods and sugars and high high GI, low GI, and it was all a bit bit too much to handle at that stage. But there was something that clicked on me, and I said, "Hang on, if if I surely I can still race. I've got arms and legs." I've got a bit of cheek still, like I can still do this. I thought to myself, and the specific example was if I don't if I don't tell anyone, how does someone know that I've got it? I said, for all I know. Can't Craig, see it. Yeah, well, my example was Craig Lowndes could have it. No one would know. No one would know. So um, I straight away grabbed a pen and a paper. I worked out how these finger pricking things work to check your bloods, and I just started writing it down every 10 minutes. What was my blood number doing? Then they'd come in and give you a Milo and then I'd drink the Milo and I'd watch my blood go up and watch my blood go down and work out what was doing what. And so now we're at Friday and I said to him, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to get out of hospital. And they said, oh, yeah, cool. Well, you're not going racing or anything. And <laughs> I said, no, no, no. We haven't been doing any of that for a while. And <laughs> I went straight to the airport, flew to Adelaide and raced Muller. In, in and and, and I, how would anyone have known? Well, and I don't want to make it sound like it just happened at the click of your fingers. I needed to make sure I knew what I needed to do to be safe you in the car. You know, and if deep in your gut yeah. you knew that, that you were going to be a liability to yourself or the competitors, yeah. you wouldn't have done it. And we, we wouldn't have told many people, like my mechanics wouldn't have known. I think Shane Price probably knew because all I did that weekend was just sit in the truck. Mm. No one was allowed into the truck. I sat in the truck and I just finger pricked myself all weekend, put my helmet on in the truck, go jump in, do the thing, come back and just sat in the truck. And... You know, I, I sort of worked out what I needed to do and to this day that's kind of been the routine that I run mm. and, and I've never had any issues, touch wood. But it was enough for me to go, you know what, well, I'm going to persist with this. And, um, yeah, I remember Dad dropped me home after Malala. We must have flown home Perkins Airlines. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I remember him dropping off. He goes, oh, it's been a big week for you. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> um, I was actually on for a good result at Malala. I would have got another podium, but the engine shit itself in the last race. So that was disappointing end of the weekend. It would have been nice to get a podium that weekend. For those that don't know, what is type 1 diabetes? What's the difference between type 1 and type 2? And were there any signs? When you looked back, once you knew what was going on, that you went, oh, actually, that explains a bit of this or that. Just to paint a bit more of a picture around the Yeah, well, I know a lot about it now, Noons. Um, so type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. And when I had that cold and flu, Sandown 2006, there was bad cells in my body that gave me the, the infection or the virus. Once that had happened... They then decided to do something else in my body, which was turned to the pancreas, which is an organ that everyone has in their body that creates insulin, which is used to break down sugar in your blood when you eat and drink. So it's autoimmune. There's nothing you've got any control over. There's nothing you did no. along the journey. It's not like you had too much of this no. or not enough of that. It just, just happened. It's, it's supposed to be hereditary, you know, if you're... If you've got it, and I hate to say this, it's a good chance your kids might have it or whatever. It's, mm. it's an hereditary mm. thing. Not in my family at all. 
No history. No history. No history. Grandpa got it about six months before he passed away, but he was in his 80s, and that's, you know, when, when your body's failing, your time's up, stuff, stuff happens. happens. It's yep. not, not related. Yep. Um, so, yep, so that's type 1. And type 2 is is type one's known as juvenile diabetes. So when the pancreas, for the better use of a term, shits itself, then you need, technical medical you, explanation. you need to generate that insulin through injections. Mm. So you're administering what an organ in the body's automatically doing for, for healthy people. So that's what why there's injections. And then you check your blood glucose levels because your injections and your food are there to stabilize those values. Type 2 is known as adult, adult diabetes, which is more of a lifestyle thing. Typically, when people become overweight, um, it, it can also be related to gestational diabetes for, for, for females when they're pregnant. Um, again, caused prominently by that sort of lifestyle might be that's what you, the one when you haven't looked after yourself. Correct, yeah. and 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 you uh, can get on t- tablets and kind of cut out your sugary stuff, and and it all sort of comes good because mm. your pancreas hasn't dropped on all cylinders; it's still got a couple. Of, mm. It's only got one plug lead off it as opposed to all of them. So that's that's the difference, and. Um, yeah, I, I persisted racing without telling anyone for, for yeah, about a year and a half hmm. after that. And the process that you had to go through then in terms of you, you're pricking your finger to check your blood, to check the levels, um, but the system, what you used to do that in 2006 versus, I mean, you've before we sat down here, we had some lunch before you started and you quickly just give yourself, it's like you got a pen yeah. that you, 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 know, you, you stab yourself with for two seconds, quick check done move on so has that changed what you did then in terms of looking after yourself to now is it the technology is it the gear that you've got is it your your understanding of it how's it changed from when you first were faced with this to what is now just you know it's nothing you know you've been in our office before and you you know look at your watch check your thing oh yeah bang done move on well the technology's probably changed the most and i remember when i was a kid and you'd remember the spear grant steers Mm. Um, he was a type one diabetic and long time Holden exec. Yeah, had the Holden dealer team was tight with Brock and your, yeah. your dad and yeah, it was called the spear because of the size of his head, uh, the shape of his head. <laughs> for those wondering, so he he had type one, but he was one of those guys that you know through the seventies and eighties there was no technology. The insulin you used was derived from a pig, like an animal, whereas now it's kind of manufactured. And um, you know he just didn't look after himself. That's not what got him in the end. But you know he he would drink like a fish and smoke and mm, all that mm. stuff. But he, the awareness and the technology to to sort of administer a normal lifestyle has changed so much. Even from when I started. So when I started, you pricked your fingers with these gnarly um, jabbers that would you know hurt a bit, and you draw a sample of blood and you check it. Now I wear a sensor on my stomach that automatically goes to my phone, so I don't actually have to finger prick anymore. But the actual insulin it, injections. It tells you. It yeah. tells you, goes, all right, you're due. Correct. And then I can run that in a race car, um, which is much later on in my driving career, but um, that, that's become a useful tool. But the insulin um, administ- um, happens kind of the same way just through an injection, which is when you eat because that's when you're having carbohydrates, which alter your blood sugar levels yeah. and then you 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 know you you have that injection when you eat so that's kind of stayed the same for me the whole way through other than the fact that there's some new insulins around because they're, you know they're always manufacturing new stuff um i tried a back in 16 17 i tried a insulin pump which is kind of like a having that insulin thing connected to you the whole time and it's just a drip feed um but i didn't really like it was kind of like you know mowing the lawns with an extension lead hanging off that gets in the way type thing. So I sort of shut that down. I went back to what, what I do. So that's, that's what I was doing when we had lunch before. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. So, rewinding back, we 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 do digress on and dive around on this podcast. It's what we do. It's it's a thing. So, two thousand and six, when you add up the sum of the parts, and we haven't even got to Bathurst yet, by the way. So, we're racing V eights. We get a crack at Albert Park. We get this. It's life altering because this is going to stay with you for for the rest of your life. Um, this news of what's going on, 
oh, now I've got to change my lifestyle a bit to be able to deal with this, keep it on the down low as well, main game run at Sandown. Then we're going to Bathurst. So this is all going on yeah. in this time and then history shows what happened. So much um, PR, the two youngest, the youngest combo in history, lap one, you're not even halfway around the thing and you're belting in the back of a limping Mark Scaife and the car's rooted and you, your great dream is, you know, of a great debut is gone in two seconds flat. There's a bit going on yeah. for a young bloke to cope with. It's what? 20 years of age. Yeah, and I guess, you know, like Formula Ford, I did five state series races, three national series races. I've done eight races straight into supercars and done, what's that, probably five DVS rounds plus the Grand Prix. So I've done 15 car races, maybe 20. Oh, yeah, events, somewhere. yeah, yeah. And now I'm racing at Bathurst. Funny story. What, they're just thinking about the Peter Brock stuff. I remember this clearly when Peter passed on, the, on that day. Myself... James Moffat, Tim Slade, catching up Friday night for a feed. So we thought, you know, a bit, bit of a sombre night for those in the industry. Obviously, every news channel was talking about it. We thought we'd, I would just pick a quiet pub in Port Melbourne, South Melbourne. Walking in the pub, who do you reckon the first person we saw was in this pub? Mm. James Brock. Kidding me? No way. Fluke. Uh, and we were Unbelievable. Moff and I obviously were maybe Slade may not have known James. Moff and I did. And, like, he was there with his family. They were kind of just having a sombre couple mm. of drinks and stuff like that. And I thought, out of all the pubs we went to in Melbourne, they, what do you say? Yeah, yeah. You know, like, wow. That, anyway, that that's that was crazy to think that, anyway. Of all, you know, there's yeah. hundreds and thousands yeah. of pubs in Melbourne and the one you roll into, the, the Brock family yeah. is, is meeting in for a- Crazy. You know, a get-together. And then so we get to Bathurst and, you know, for me, first time driving was, was awesome, but it was such a build-up to the event with Peter. And were you – I mean, you were double duty yeah. that weekend. You were the, the DVS and the main game car. Were you – was it an imposing place for you to go? Or were you just excited to get there and keen to take, tackle it? Or were you a little wary of what you are about to be up against? Bit of everything. Yeah. I, I watched that many laps of Bathurst. I you would have watched more laps of Bathurst yeah. than any other kid in history, I, I felt like I knew what I had to do. You know, I knew where guys changed gears and braked and turned. I just wanted to get out there and do it. And I, I only told this story – to one of Eggleston's rookies going to Bathurst the other day. And this is advice that my old man gave me that's run through not just Bathurst but in general, but it's make your fastest lap your last lap, right? I went out in the first practice session and I'd done about a 2 minute 18 in the DVS car and I would have been 20th in the session. And I dug up the times to show these kids this the other day. Went out in the main game car and found three or four seconds, did a 2 minute 15 and we were last. Last session on the first day, I was P1. I did an 11-0 and I'd found like nine seconds over the day and I was P1 to Luke Yilden by half a second. <laughs> and, I, and I was explaining to these kids, this is how Bathurst works. If you try and be fastest at the start, it's not going to work. And that was an example for me how much time I'd found in the first day. And, you know, to leave, I was in a press conference in, <laughs> in, in the DVS. And uh, so I was going well. And then... Um, um, main game was the car wasn't fantastic for whatever reason. Shane and I had a good run in the DVS car. I stalled it off the line Friday race, and I ended up uh, a couple of cars behind Mark Porter spinning. Yeah, I remember. and you know I I missed him, and then two guys behind me got him. You know, two cars behind got him. And um, that that kind of knocked us so that, around. So they were unsided by you, yeah. And the, whoever was in front of you, and yeah, around yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. Not, no one's fault. No, and it was one um, of those, just one of those things. Yeah, and his engine had blown. Yeah, I, he was I, spun and stuck in the middle of the road. Yeah, blind corner crest. And I, of, yeah. I, I give evidence in the in Cam's investigation, and I remember having some oil come up on the screen and all this sort of stuff. And I guess I didn't realise how much that probably knocked us around a bit Saturday night because you knew the news was never going to be mm. good. Mm. And that that was hard. And then, yeah, Sunday morning, all the Brock stuff, and mm. then crashing into Holden's favourite for the race. Yeah. It's just like, a bit going on. Yeah. So talk, take me back to the what's going on in your car because you're, you're in the back part of the field. He's on pole, Mark Scaife mm. in the HRT car. So it's... 
It's the great white hope for the Holden Racing Team with the black bonnet as a mark of respect, with the black lion. Um, that car's a frigging rocket ship. Yeah. Gark Tander talked on this pod a year or two ago that if they'd started that car from pit lane, they'd have led before the first pit stop because yeah. it was such a, a rocket ship. The front row's vacant. So the, the pole is actually P3. Yeah. So everyone's back a row from what they would have normally been. Race starts. It's clear his thing's struggling. It's got a clutch issue. It's limping up mountain straight. And I've seen the onboard from your car, the Tiger Inn car. Mm. There's no way in hell you would have ever been a chance to miss him. Mm. But I have a memory. Is this right? The second Toll HSV car, which had, I think, Anthony Trapp behind the wheel, was he the one in front of you that moved and revealed yeah. Scaife? So the brief for the race from Dad was, you know, I think he sort of got us together Saturday night, Shane and I, just make sure we're all, you know, going all right with the, the Porter stuff and just said, look, there's no expectations to do anything tomorrow other than just finish. Drive around. So that that was fine. We, we, we were under no illusions. We were a couple of seconds apart, off the lap a couple of seconds a lap off the pace. So that night we'd actually transferred a heap of stuff from Shane's DVS car to see if we could improve this other rocket. I don't know what was going on. I think we put the pedal box in and a couple other things just to give us a bit of confidence because we were struggling a bit. We were a bit slower than our DVS car. Don't know why. I don't think there's any any reasons. But um, so back to the coin toss, Shane had qualified and then I was starting the race. Mm. And, uh, yeah, got us started. And I remember coming out of turn one, and that HSV car of Traddy's kind of was running me along, like running me out of the line. And if it was a sprint race, I would have held me ground, turned him around, and put him in the fence because mm. I had nowhere to go. But I thought, nah, you know, Dad just said, keep There's out of here. So I've got on the brakes, got behind him. We're pulling the gears now, come up over the crest. And I remember sort of had Nathan Pretty on one side in the super cheap car and uh, just sort of keeping checks. And next minute, that toll thing's got out of the way. And then there's a car stopped stationary almost on the top of the crest and I kind of had not enough time to swerve because I probably would have taken out Nath and just yeah sort of jumped on the brakes and slammed up the back of the car and I got on the radio and said guys I've just ran into Jim Richards who was in the second yeah well, I didn't car. think it'd be the guy off yeah. pole yeah and um it was still running I'd never come to a stop and I just said I'll bring it back and see what happens and then um just dribbled around got back to the pits and um, the guys assessed that the steering rack had broken and they'd have to take the engine out to fix it. So it was just game over. Mm, mm. And that was it. Yeah. And I I remember thinking, oh, I got it. And then someone goes, oh, you actually took out Scaife. And I'm like, oh, like I, you know, I didn't mean to. Mm. Went up and saw him and just sort of said, sorry, man, I, you know. So you thinking that you'd taken him out? Yeah. Mm. I mean, I didn't know what the issue was, but, um, you know, having since now have such a great relationship with the Walkinshaw guys, that car was never finishing the race, mm. never finishing the race. And um, What was what was not right with it or what oh, went Oh, the clutch wrong with was it? shagged. Yeah. It shagged the clutch it off the line. It was not going to recover. No. And you watch the in-car – and it's just freewheel and free yeah. spinning, yeah. And I got told when I was a young kid that when the clutch is shagged, just leave it in the shortest gear and drive it there. Don't keep grabbing gears. You're putting more load through it. And he, he was in top gear just doing bell housing burnouts. Mm. So the guys said that that, yeah, that car was never finishing a race regardless of what I did. And um, I still felt like I was copping a bit of flack and, take, and you know, I took responsibility because I was driving. And um, one thing, you know, someone – um, I was listening that week after the race. Stephen Richards was doing a Triple M radio interview and one of the announcers said, oh, you know, it was pretty funny. Jack, Your teammate Jack took out Scaife and Richo said, um, Scaife actually took my teammate out. Mm. And I thought at that point, I'm like, two things I learned. Richo's a bloody good bloke. Mm. Stood up for you. And two, his analysis is kind of right. Mm. Mm. So Yeah, so... Did you go and, and Scaife would have ex he, he knew the deal. He, he knew the deal. You didn't take him. It wasn't a deliberate thing. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time with a wounded car. You had nowhere to go. Yeah. I don't think. How did, I, he, did, you go, think you, did you go down and talk to him? Yeah, well, yeah, I saw him and I was, you know, I'm a pretty emotional sort of guy and I think I was a bit sad that I'd taken him out. Sorry, mate. Like, didn't mean it. And he just sort of, I think he probably felt, he probably still thinks that I had a bit to do with him not finishing that day, but. Um, you know, I, I don't. What do you, What do you say? Like, 
we were, our, both our days were done mm. at mm. that point. So the rest is history. I'll yeah. tell you one thing, Noons, I picked up a lot of Ford fans that day. I was about Life to say that. Ford fans. <laughs> there's every cloud has a silver lining. And if there was a mob who were happy to see what happened, it's the Ford fans. Yeah. So the, the, the best thing for them, other than a Ford winning, which did happen on that day, was the Holden getting wiped out. So whoever wiped the factory Holden, which was the big threat out, even though it was another Commodore bloke, uh, so you picked up a couple of couple of fans. I remember when I walked down to see Scaife, I had a Ford fan say something positive, and when I'd walk back from seeing Scaife, some Holden fan mouthed off at me that I was, you know, a oh, useless Oh, well, you gained kid. one, lost yeah, one, yeah. you were 50-50. That was- <laughs> I just remember that. It was quite funny. <laughs> that, that worked out okay. Um, so 06 has been a mammoth year. When all the things we've talked about, I mean, we've, you know, we've, Talked about 06 for a fair while here, but there's so much to unpack and so much to analyse. So Stephen Richards leaves. Paul Dumbrell leaves. No drivers at Jack Daniels Racing. I'm, I, John Bauer, there were chats had, yep. weren't there, for John Bauer to maybe have his retirement season in a JD car. But in the end, it's you and Shane get the big uh, graduation up to the main game. So is this a case of... Well, Larry doesn't want to go and pay huge money because at the time, driving salaries were big time. You know, Richo was going FPR, that would have been for really good money. When blokes moved big teams, Mm. from big team to big team, there was a pretty big check being cut. So was this a case of your dad going, I don't want to get in a bidding war to go and find the next superstar from another team. I don't want to take a pay driver either. Got these two young blokes who did all right last year. Let's let's put them in. So Shane was always going to get the promotion based on how good he'd gone. When she was runner-up in the yeah. DVS to Adam Macro. So he finished second. Yeah. I finished third in the chip. And, you know, I was wrapped that I was going to run DVS the next year. Shane was getting promoted. And I think Dad and Bowie did a handshake deal or, a, you know, as good as a handshake they deal. had a fairly strong discussion about yep. it. Yep. And so that was kind of what was happening. And we, we were starting to look around as to who could jump in the DVS second car and I rang Grant Denyer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I said, why don't you come over? And who had driven for DJR yeah. the previous year. And he didn't want to do it in the end because he was kind of had a bit of a Ford link. And I forget who else I rang, but I was kind of ringing trying to find people to come, Anyone. And, dri- yeah, come, come <laughs> and drive with this type thing. Um, and then that quickly turned into Bowie got um, – same thing. He didn't want to end his career in a Holden. Had some Ford allegiance. I think they gave him a free car or something. And he, at the sort of eleventh hour, said to Dad that he's not going to do it. And then Dad's like, well, "Not many drivers mm. around. Like, yeah, don't no one really even worth paying, let alone paying." And um, yeah, somehow I can't even remember the specific conversation. But next minute, I was in the main game car. So too early. Oh, yeah. In hindsight. At the time, did oh. you think, you, I can do this? Um, probably only because I knew Shane was going to be in the next car. Mm. I thought, well, yeah, but definitely, definitely too early. I mean, I rocked up to Adelaide in the DVS car because I was in a VZ and Shane was in a That's VE. Right. E, yeah. And, I mean, I just remember it was a pure DVS car that I was in. And, um, yeah, like, I, I don't know where we qualified. Adelaide was nowhere, but I just remember it looking at DVS timesheets and it was about three-tenths quicker than pole and I thought, yeah, that should have been where I was. Mm, mm. <laughs> but anyway, hindsight. Yeah. And did Jack Daniels have to be convinced of this? They've gone from having um, they've gone from having the previous year where they'd won. You know, Richo had won some races at Albert Park. I think he won the round at Perth. Um, you know, competing, like running at the front to now two rookie kids. Were they? Did they have to be convinced to... To go along with this because sponsors have a big say in yeah. in these sorts of things. With teams. I, I reckon they would have, but that we never had much to do with it. Dad kind of did all that. And I remember his kind of words were like, you know, I want to breed my own drivers. And it kind of, I, I see the same thing happening with Erebus, with Barry Ryan, with Will Brown and Brody. And, you know, Barry worked for Dad for a long time, mm. and I think that's the same mentality. Well, we don't need to pay someone half a million bucks a year. We'll, we'll get our own guys, and if they both come good, they both come good. If only one does, it's still cheaper, and and you get a bit of a run out. So we got a lot of exposure in that, but, um, you know, I totaled the car in practice at New Zealand. I remember. which It, it, was, a, it was a Barina, not a Commodore. Yeah, and that, that was annoying because that, that was one way to get yourself a new car, yeah. though. And that was, you know, to be honest, like I look back at that year and there wasn't a lot to look back on, but 
we went to Winton. We both I've got a brand new car, and we both qualified in the top ten. Mm. And fourth, you know, fourth, third or fourth race into the season, now that would be you know quite well pumped up. We got a bit pumped up, but you know we had Scaife come and drive the car that year. We out qualified him <laughs> at mm. Winton. So he's you know not saying his feedback wasn't wanted, but when when we went to a track that we'd been to twice and the car was pretty sorted, we were pretty right. Mm. But every other track we hadn't been to and we're trying to develop the VE, which had a few new bits and pieces in it and it just just didn't work for us, unfortunately. So where did – you've been keeping this diabetes thing under wraps. Yeah. Where and why did it get out? Bahrain. Did it, did, did it get out because someone blabbed or did you uh, let it out or how ba- did that come I about? Me- I remember it clear as day, mate, Bahrain, 2007. And uh, we – you know, when you – when you travel like that with a team of people, you know, for me to keep my my stuff private is very challenging because you have to go to the toilet every such and such to do your pricking and your insulins mm. and whether it's meal times on a plane. And, it, it, you know, when you're traveling with a group of 12, 13, 14 people for a week like that was, that was getting the whole thing was becoming very challenging for me as a person on you know weight on my shoulders was it more more challenging to hide it or more challenging because you f- didn't like hiding um i think it was challenging to hide it and challenging because i didn't like to hide it but it was also challenging because we were not going good on the racetrack so everything was just kind of building and building and i remember at bahrain because I kind of, we always compared ourselves, Shane and I, and I just remember I wasn't going very good, and I'm just like, like, I don't understand. I can't do what Shane's doing with the car. And there was something going on with brake rotors, and I remember Shane had a different brake rotor, and I got it for the last race or the second last race, and all of a sudden all my problems were fixed. And I just thought, nah, this driving with diabetes, keeping a secret, racing in Dad's team, it's just, just too much so what's the exit strategy from not driving from dad's team but just sort of kind of taking some pr- pressure off and I, I had made my mind up on the plane home that you know i needed to come public with diabetes and stand away from driving and kind of come up with another strategy to either continue or, or kind of almost give it away because it just wasn't working for me you know mm. and um you know dad was on on par i remember dad rang plastic to do a Press release, plastic come in, and it was big news for him. And he loved in- a bit of big news. Yeah, yeah, and kind of for the industry. You know, we don't get injuries like footy players or anything. Yeah. And um, so I sat out the last two races. And, you know, to be honest, looking back on it, it was the best thing I ever did, mate, come public. Took an enormous weight off my shoulders. You know, when I filled out my forms, it says, are you diabetic? You could write yes instead of no. And, um, you know, and that's kind of started my next phase has been a driver with diabetes not a bloke mm. hiding diabetes and also just in the normal living situation mm. as well just mm. being a person so that freed you up freed your head freed your mind freed everything up so but you've gone from the thing that you were kind of trying to get to now not being the thing that's in among your world but it's an interesting one isn't it when you look back on things that at the time you got to give back the thing that you wanted the most mm. driving a race driving a v8 supercar full-time yeah for your dad's team famous team but when you look isn't it funny when you look back on stuff and go the thing that was the worst thing actually turned out to be the best thing yeah it's an amazing so did you feel better in yourself straight away and feel like you were rebuilding yourself from as a as a as jack the guy not just the race car driver you're sort of stripping yourself back to the foundations to to start a new life in a yeah way. Yeah, absolutely, and that just made you know took a massive weight off my shoulders. And you're like, oh, I never thought that I'd race for Dad. I always wanted to race for HRT. You know, I used to always tell Jeff Gretsch I want to drive for him. I want to drive for HRT. You know, I told that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I just mate, they were Ferrari. Yeah, they true. were yeah. what you wanted to be doing. You know, they just were such the benchmark. And you know, and then getting involved with Creno and HSV and that, I was kind of, you know, trying to always par- pave my own way, which is what Dad wanted me to do. And I guess those two oh six oh seven years were kind of out of convenience more so than anything else in terms of the way it all worked. And, yeah, you can look back on it and say maybe one of them was a bit rushed or whatever, but, um, 
you know, lessons learned, and then we're able to press on for, for 2008 and set up what I've done now, really. Well, that was part one of a great chat with Jack Perkins. The great news is part two next week, we continue it on. We chat about uh, his road back to the main game of Supercars Championship Racing, driving and winning for the Holden Racing Team and what's been involved in restarting Perkins Engineering and restoring some of those amazing cars that that team did such great things with. Jack tackles your National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions and also tackles our V8 Sleuth Top 10 Shootout. Don't forget to visit our online bookshop. The website address is bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. Sign up to our newsletter through our regular v8sleuth.com.au website and head to socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That's where you can find us. Of course, send us through all of your ideas for future guests for the pod, feedback, notes, quotes, stats, info, whatever you can throw at us. You might have a little tip-off for a story or a car that's hiding in a shed somewhere. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, that's another edition of the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco Run and One. Part two of Jack Perkins comes up next week and tune in every Tuesday for Repco Supercars Weekly. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.